All right, well, welcome everyone. This is really lovely to have you all here and um, for us all to explore together what this day is going to bring and some ideas that will generate around uh, Buddhist environmental chaplaincy, what that could mean. And um, so Gil's going to orient us to the day in a few minutes, but we're going to start with a short sit. So just finding a comfortable seat and having some time in silence together as people arrive and taking a bit of time to settle.
And as a way to bring us together around this theme of a Buddhist environmental chaplaincy, just invite you to bring to mind a moment or a memory or a reflection of a time that really sparked for you some care, appreciation, gratitude for the natural world, for connection uh, more than and beyond the human connection in nature. I'm just reflecting on this moment of connection. And the feelings of care, inspiration, appreciation, gratitude. So thank you again for being here. Gil. So Lauren just went and got the hearing assistant devices. So if you have trouble hearing, uh, we have all these devices that are in the, on the counter, just uh, around the corner there in the outer hall. <clears throat> Otherwise, it's mostly adequate, the volume. Uh, Diana? Could you help Lauren with, uh, sometimes people never had to, done them before. It's hard to know how they go in the ear. 
Yeah, I struggled the first time, first two or three times. Okay, <laughs> great. So, <clears throat> welcome, and uh, my name is Gil Fronstahl, and um, I'm the teacher here at IMC, so if you have any questions about being here in the building, you're welcome to ask me at any time. The, um, <clears throat> for those of you who've never been here before, there's bathrooms uh, on the outside of the building, and uh, there's a refrigerator if you need to use it for some reason. We'll have lunch served. And um, there's tea uh, you can have any time while you're here. Uh, there's a counter by the kitchen with a hot water dispenser, and there's teas in the drawer underneath the counter there. So I... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> so I'm very happy to have this event. I'm very happy that you're all here. The, uh, I was first interested in environmentalism in college many, many years ago. Uh, and was an environmental studies major, and then uh, applied to go to, I didn't graduate in that major, but I did it for a while, and then I applied to, uh, to do, uh, get a master's in soil conservation at UC Berkeley, and uh, almost made it there, but then uh, instead went off to a Zen monastery and, and spent the rest of you know, my adult life kind of involved in Buddhism, but in the back of my mind was always this uh, love and care for the natural world, the environmental world. And I've been, for a long time I wanted to bring these two together, but I've been a little bit busy. And, uh, and so I'm so happy to uh, met Kirsten. Who's uh, not busy at all. What? She said, who's not busy at all. Yeah, she's not busy. <laughs> and uh, who's not busy. And... <laughs> and uh, and I mentioned to her this idea that I had, and she lit up, boy. And, uh, and it, it touched something very uh, meaningful in her. So then we together kind of planned this event, and here we are. So the uh, idea of calling this Buddhist environmental chaplaincy is um, uh, to bring these three different concepts or fields together, Buddhism, the environment, and chaplaincy. I've been involved in training people to be chaplains for some 15 years. Some of you have been in the chaplaincy program that we do here. And, um, and so um, uh, it seemed like a valuable thing to do, to bring chaplaincy and Buddhist chaplaincy into people's relationship with the natural world. Uh, the natural world is very important for many people. It's important for everyone, but they don't know it. And um, and uh, that connection we have with the natural world um, is, can be quite precious. Some people think it's a, quite of a spiritual or sacred connection. It's very meaningful on many different fronts. And so chaplains are people who support people and aid people and guide people and, uh, in all the different ways in which their relationship is to the natural world. Um, Buddhism points us to the idea of liberation, compassion, um, the cultivation of wonderful, wholesome qualities that give us stability and wisdom in relationship to all aspects of our life, the natural world included. 
uh, so that we're not overwhelmed by it, but we have we become an agent for uh, helpful change. We become bodhisattvas or caretakers for this world, uh, not victims of it. And then to have these two, Buddhism and and chaplaincy, um, join in the area of the environment just seems to me really precious. There's a long tradition of Buddhism uh, being practiced in the natural world, in the forest, in the, uh, in the wilds. And, um, and I was very fortunate in my early years of Buddhist practice uh, was uh, a lot of practice was done in the natural world. At, uh, at first at uh, Green Gulch Farm at Marin County where I got to work in the fields and roam the Marin headlands. And then in uh, going to Tassajara, which is down the Big Sur Mountains, deep in the wilderness. And it was quite uh, uh, important and valuable for me to practice in these settings. The natural world supported me. It po- helped me understand Buddhism, helped me, helped me understand myself, and um, and understand the world. And so um, Buddhism has this natural affinity, I believe, uh, to being connected and living in the natural world with wisdom and with compassion. <clears throat> so to bring these two together, these three all together, just seemed like just, to me it seemed kind of obvious. It seemed like a wonderful thing to do. Uh, however, uh, I think that it's a relatively new field, the idea of Buddhist environmental chaplaincy. Uh, and um, there are a few people who are poking around, trying to make this happen or doing this kind of work. Uh, but I think that we don't really know what this is yet. And uh, sometimes not knowing is sometimes the best because it leaves us fresh to explore and discover. And so one of the uh, 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 ways this day has been set up is as a journey where we're going to uh, explore um, uh, or try to discover uh, a definition of Buddhist environmental chaplaincy. And I, uh, the hope is that we do not come up with a definition by the end. Uh, but uh, the idea is to contribute to that definition and uh, to have different ideas and, and get a range of uh, people's, uh, people's thoughts and inspirations around this possibility. What could this be, Buddhist environmental chaplaincy? And we'll maybe all leave with a wider sense of what it is and, and maybe someday in the future we'll have a more precise definition, but I like the idea that it's a journey towards a definition by the end of the day. And we've organized a day around three concepts that are often used in the world of chaplaincy to to kind of uh, uh, help people or chaplains understand what is it that people need support with um, in their lives. And um, the first one is uh, that people need, uh, it's one of the basic human needs is to feel a sense of belonging, to feel like they belong, they're included in this world, in the society, somewhere feel, feel uh, there's a belonging. Uh, the other is that uh, people feel, need to feel a sense of reconciliation or healing of broken relationships. And so some people feel it's a broken relationship with the natural world, and so how to heal that and bring it together. Another area of chaplaincy is to provide sense of meaning and purpose. Uh, having some sense of purpose and meaning is essential for most human lives. And some people have it subconsciously, unconsciously. Some people have it very consciously. And chaplains explore this area of purpose and meaning. And without that, some people get depressed or live kind of empty lives. 
And then uh, the fourth area has to do with self-worth and efficacy, that we're valuable, we have, uh, we, are, uh, we have worth in ourselves, and that we can act in the world. We have efficacy, we can, have, we can be agents of change, we can have some uh, ability to do something. And so those four areas is the segments of the day, and we'll have different speakers speaking for, on each of these topics. Uh, with the idea that they're going to partly uh, uh, talk about the work they do already, uh, working with the environment, natural world, somehow tying a little bit to this, these topics. And uh, so we get a sense of some of the different range, some of the range of possibilities of what can be done in, in, uh, in this work. And then after a uh, uh, discussion like that, after each of these four sessions, there'll be a segment of time where we as a group will... Um, uh, based on what we've heard for each of these segments, each of these kinds of areas, uh, we'll try to come up with um, uh, some ideas, definitions, uh, what Buddhist environmental chaplaincy might be uh, in relationship to what we just talked about. And we'll write them up on the, on the post-it notes up there so we get to see over the course of the day the different things people come up with. And hopefully that uh, wider list of things that we come up with will be interesting for all of us and expand our understanding and, um, and, uh, as we explore this uh, field. As a way of uh, <clears throat> bringing these th three areas together in a way that has inspired me, uh, I thought that uh, I would like to read from this wonderful little book that maybe some of you know, that just a title, I think, is uh, powerful or inspiring. It's called Love Letter to the Earth. And it's by Thich Nhat Hanh. And uh, he has this wonderful way of writing. And given that we're sitting here today, uh, um, breathing the smoke from these fires we have in California, and, and uh, the natural world is a dangerous world in some ways. It's a world where there's, um, uh, you know, these kinds of, nat we call them natural disasters can occur. And this is part of where chaplains come into play, is how do chaplains support people at times like this, in this kind of situation? How do chaplains support people when there's no natural disaster, when everything in the environment is perfect and nice? Uh, how do we uh, connect people to maybe the sacredness or the specialness of that relationship we can have? And every, the whole range in between. So here's Thich Nhat Hanh. And he calls, uh, after explaining why he does it, uh, he calls uh, the earth uh, Mother. Dear Mother, there have been times when we suffered greatly as a result of natural disasters. We know that whenever we suffer, you suffer through us. The floods, tornadoes, earthquakes, and tsunamis aren't punishments or manifestations of your anger, but are phenomena that must occur on occasion so that balance can be restored. The same is true of a shooting star. For balance in nature to be achieved, at times some species have to endure loss. In those moments, we have turned to you, dear mother, and asked whether or not we could count on you on your stability 
and compassion. You didn't answer us right away. Then, beholding us with great compassion, you replied, Yes, of course, you can count on your mother. I will always be there for you. But then, you said, Dear children, you must also ask yourselves, can your mother, Earth, count on you? Dear mother, today we offer you our solemn reply. Yes, mother, you can count on us. Okay, so I didn't um, formally introduce myself, but I am Kirsten, my name's Kirsten. And um, we're going to move into one of these main themes that Gil was um, talking about. And in doing so, I'm just going to share a little bit about my own experience and what has kind of brought me to this room and to this work and to this question. Uh, the, the theme that we're embarking on right now is around belonging. And um, we wanted to begin here because it is a really fertile ground for um, being inspired, feeling nourished, filling ourselves up with the gratitude with the love with the care that we may experience and feel for I, I use the word more than human um, it doesn't mean like celestial more than human but it's a way of um, getting at for me how our relations include more than the human to human relations um, and and they do include the human to human relations but that there's uh, a much larger natural world that we're part and parcel of. Um, so really beginning with a place of nourishing. And uh, my story, or some of what has kind of brought me here, is so much related to that. Um, I'd say that I've, for my entire life, have felt a, a very strong affinity with um, this more-than-human world. And... It was especially in my adolescence when I was looking around and just uh, feeling so um, overwhelmed by the suffering I saw in the world that my time in nature became really a refuge. And this was before I um, encountered the Buddha Dharma. But there was a way where the... Um, the cycles of time felt like they matched my cycles of time where um, there was a resting that I could experience in many of the um, places that I would begin to visit again and again. 
And that gave me the nourishment and stamina to kind of go into the world and be more of an agent. Um, and then I did find the, the Buddha Dharma, which really was this incredible kind of um, compliment for me on my path and on, on, a, on a path. Um, I've worked quite a bit with Joanna Macy, who a number of you are probably familiar with. And the um, themes that Gil was referring to with respect to chaplaincy, um, there's, she has a system of the work that reconnects and a spiral, um, and it maps really beautifully onto those chaplaincy themes. Uh, and uh, Joanna Macy's work is very much around um, how it is to be with the suffering in the world um, and to kind of move forth and uh, and so, so her kind of four themes are around starting with gratitude. So starting with this kind of sense of belonging, like w- how amazing it is that we are these earth beings here. And, um, and then part of that being here um, allows us to kind of open to the pain that we may feel when we witness or are experiencing our shared suffering. And then the third is um, seeing with new eyes, uh, which maps really well with the sense of like meaning and purpose. Um, you know, what are the tools that we can have that fortify us, that help us to um, have a sense of meaning when a lot can feel disruptive um, and difficult? And then the last is around going forth, so being agents in the world. Um, so I, I encountered Joanna's work actually, um, back when I was in high school as an adolescent. Um, and, uh, she quickly became a hero of mine. And then I did have some, the the good fortune of working, um, working with her, which I have, I imagine that a number of you have, um, and my work has continued to be very environmentally minded. I just um, finished my PhD, actually, in environmental sociology. And um, the main things that I explore are how it is that, what are these relations that we have, um, these more than human relations, and how do they matter? And what are the ways that um, we're connected and we feel one another um, and, our conne- and our more than human connections? Um, in ways that aren't represented perhaps so easily or so well by um, by a more um, kind of, quote, rational way of thinking or being um, in the world that I found um, pretty uh, dominant in the academy, in the scholastic academy. So I'm a little irreverent on that note, but I've gotten a lot of support for my irreverence. Um, so that's a little bit about me and because the day, you know, we likely will be, um, opening to some themes around the pain in the world, shared suffering, um, environmental violence, environmental racism, um, environmental justice issues. These are the smoke in many ways sort of represents some of some of that um, the difficult material that m- will likely emerge in our conversations and how to be with that um, we're going to start with 
nourishing, with belonging. And um, what I invite everyone to do now is uh, we had asked you if you remembered, and maybe you didn't, to bring something for our shared centerpiece here that sort of signals or symbolizes your own um, kind of relation with the natural world, with this more than human world. And um, as you feel called to place your item on the centerpiece and to take a stone from this bowl in the center. And this is really intended to, um, well, it has a number of intentions, but for one, um, it is something that we all share together here today. So it's very much this building of community for this day. And then also there's something so incredibly beautiful and earthy about a rock (laughs) and a stone and to have that to kind of keep us grounded through our time together and keep us reflecting on um, this just greater earth body, this mother um, that we're part of. Gil and I talked a bit about how uh, wonderful it would be to be able to get us outside. (laughs) And, you know, there's some irony in the fact that we're spending most of the day in here. Um, but this is a way that we can get some of, you know, this, this earth energy in this room. And, um, and so once everyone has done that, then, um, or as you're doing that, um, just reflecting again on one thing that nourishes you, that guides you in this work, or in this question, or has brought you here today, um, what, uh, what has sparked this interest and this curiosity for you? And so as you take your stone, leave your peace, come back to your seat and reflect on that, uh, then I'll invite those of you who feel called to just, you know, seed the room with those experiences and moments of um, belonging and nourishment for us to move move forward together today. If you didn't bring uh, something, uh, I happen to brought a number of leaves from my visit to the Sierras last week. So it doesn't have to be uh, one at a time. Yeah. And even if you didn't bring anything, please still take a stone. Oh, you are great! Yay!
clear. I, I said a lot of things. There were a lot of invitations in that, um, a lot of different invitations. So just to be clear, uh, what we're harvesting in this moment um, or seeding the room with are anything that comes up for you in terms of why, when, how you are nourished by the natural world. And, um, and so part of that can be, you know, related to why you're here today. But really those, those moments, those sparks of what, what brings that sense of care and inspiration and gratitude and nourishment? And is there, you know, one uh, experience that you can speak, give words to right now? Uh, I'm sure there's more than one. and entirely optional. I'll, demo- I'll demonstrate, <laughs> <laughs> I think, <laughs> that um, uh, when I was quite young, the, um, I had a number of experiences, both laying in bed at night before falling asleep and looking out into the universe. It was a kind of sense I had. And uh, just looking forever into this infinite infinity or places next to water. I grew up a lot near, near water, and it's beautiful, still, quiet fjords in Norway, and just sitting next to the water or being on a boat. Both those places, and I felt um, a profound sense of belonging, like I was home. But it was not just a, being home in a deep way, but it was also a, a wonderful home where I, in some profound way, felt like I could disappear. And in that disappearing was a homecoming. And I didn't feel afraid of dying because I thought, then I go home in that natural world. I have um, so many of these, it's hard to kind of pick one, actually. But I'm going to go with um, a time probably about 15 years ago, I was with my family in the Yucatan, and we were on the coast um, across from Belize, and I had gone out snorkeling by myself. And I'm a strong swimmer, so I was swimming out and out and out towards the reef where the ocean ledge dropped off. And as I approached the ledge, this ray, very large ray, um, approached me and started kind of interacting with me. And we sort of swam together and looked at each other, and then it started leading me back to shore. And I wasn't actually sure where shore was anymore. I wasn't worried about it, but um, it led me all the way back to where my sister was in a boat, um, actually looking for me. I didn't realize I'd worried her. And it was just this magical sense of connection with this creature. led me away from anywhere that I might be in danger and back towards home. An experience I had that's sort of at the interface of human and animal interaction to me was uh, um, the first house that we rented when we came to this area had an old, very deep uh, sink, ceramic-sided sink in the garage. 
And one morning I went out and I found this exhausted little mouse in the bottom who'd been scrambling for a long time trying to get out, but the sides were too steep. So I wanted to uh, relocate it, and I, I got a big jar, and and my husband said, oh, that'll never work. But I put a little piece of cheese in the jar, and um, the mouse crawled into the jar and just sat there exhausted eating this cheese and looked, you know, so kind of exhausted and relieved. And then I released it in our backyard, and it was just just a tiny little moment, but it meant a lot to me that you know there was this connection, and that we have to um, we have to look out for our activities and how they affect uh, creatures around us. I guess we're going around in a circle, though we don't have to. I'm going to guess. Um, Like Don said, like there's so many. How do you, where do you begin? But I'm going to pick sort of like a, a recurring experience I have, and I don't know that I can articulate it accurately, um, adequately, but um, I have a deep kinship with um, ravens and crows. And um, I have the great fortune of living in Zion Kenya right now where we're surrounded by ravens all the time. And, um, and the nice things about ravens and crows are that they're they're so ubiquitous. I mean, they're I'm sure there's not one, you know, not too many yards away from here right now. Um, so they're just clever and they're everywhere and they continue. Like one will just show up. I'll be sitting in a kiva in a cliffside, and then one will just come and kind of swoop by. I'm like, okay, there you are, you know. So they just sort of show up, and we do this. It just feels like we do this little heart dance together, a little brain dance. So. Um, it's just a wonderful little touchstone, airborne touchstone that comes and goes very frequently in my life. So just to, we're going to just take a couple more, so we're not going to have a chance to go around the whole room, but um, not to say that don't go around in that order. Um, uh, I grew up uh, living uh, during the summers at uh, Catalina Island, and so I spent um, probably as much time in the water as I did on land. So the ocean and the water really became my second home. Uh, one summer, uh, I was living somewhere where there was a creek, you know, running all the time. And uh, I would sleep on a kind of wooden sleeping platform. So I was right next to the creek. And... Uh, what I like was just the sound, you know, going to sleep with the sound of the creek and that, uh, you know, you don't have to turn it on and off. You don't have to decide to make it do it. I mean, the creek just does it, you know. I thought that was kind of wonderful. You could just lie there and it would do its thing and, you know, I, I, I liked it. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I brought or put on the altar seeds. And I think that for me, there's this piece of recognizing that the natural world isn't just out there, but that the natural world is in me and that it is nourished by, that I am nourished by the food that I eat and by the the, the ecology that sustains me. And the, the seeds that I brought came from a bakery, of course, in San Francisco, place of concrete, um, but recognizing that that's an ecosystem as well and that I 
have a connection to the natural world every time I eat something that, you know, builds me. If there's anyone, uh, did you, if there's any, if there's any one, one person who really wants to share, these are beautiful, but we'll just take one more and if not, we'll stop here. Ooh, okay. Inspired. It gave me time to let go of my first two inclinations to speak, but I had an amazing thing happen this last um, five days ago. I was out in a favored um, nature preserve and about as far away as the people on the far side of the room. I was with my new daughter by marriage, so we were in conversation, and I'm glad we were. Um, I saw a blur um, of fur uh, go by and wasn't able to identify it and asked Alexis if she might know what I just saw, and she hadn't seen it. And by the time we got to this spot, um, the animal had gone uphill. Um, I looked up to see if it were still there, and I saw the most gorgeous creature slowly walking up. Um, My heart right now is beating, but it wasn't then. I was in awe, and I was seeing the first mountain lion that I had ever witnessed, and it was very close, but it was so gorgeous. The tail was so long. I wondered, I was just spellbound, looking at it, going, how does it support that tail? (laughs) I had a cell phone, but it didn't even occur to, it didn't occur to me to take it out because I was so spellbound. And this, what was probably a juvenile, looked around and then at us, and then it went around the bend and disappeared. Um, It was so other than my whole in, inner being was so other than I would have predicted. So just the respect for the unknown and the known. Mm-hmm. Thank you. They're beautiful. Yeah, thank you. My heart's all filled up hearing them. Um, so we're going to do our first of the kind of brainstorming, mind, heart-storming sessions uh, around um, Buddhist environmental chaplaincy. And the question, welcome, uh, anywhere. Yes. Um, The question related to this theme that we're going to sort of um, gather the wisdom from the group is, Uh, What are possible um, tools or practices or modalities that a Buddhist environmental chaplain could use to um, help uh, um, create space for such moments of connection, of reconnection, of inspiration with the natural world? Um, And... we would love for a volunteer to take notes for us. Does anyone have good handwriting 
and really? Thank you. And we're going to have a few of these um, opportunities, so others who really want to take notes and have good handwriting can also partake. And, um, and this can really be, the, the responses can be quite, quite short. In fact, in, in, we encourage, you know, just short uh, ideas, reflections from each of you um, who, has, who has some inspiration or ideas to share. And there can even be some repetition. That's fine. Um, Oh, sure. Yeah, so um, I'll give an example, but it's more of this. I'm going to give a long-winded example, but I'll invite pithier ones. Um, But it's something I was going to share about myself, actually, and what I do is um, a lot of the work I've done over the last uh, 10, 15 years has been working with um, young people in in nature. And so... um, leading like meditation backpacking trips or bringing um, college students out into field courses. Um, And there's something that I have found really powerful and magical about that practice, about that offering of just bringing people out for extended periods of time into nature. It does something and it does something powerful. Um, So that's a, that's an example. Go. Uh, so I used to take groups out as well, but I did it around here, and I did it briefly, and it was tremendously powerful even so. So I'd say bringing people outside, sitting on the ground, um, and going sense by sense, um, frequently with the eyes closed first because the eyes are so predominant, to bring people in a mode of receptivity. So receptivity just with sound, sitting on the ground, um, and then moving that sense of receptivity to sensation of the feeling of the butt on the ground. Um, and then, uh, you know, moving on through there, through the different senses, that by itself, you know, people would just go, you know, become in these states of awe and heightened presence and love and all these things. Another tool beyond that to engage can be um, an expressive tool from that various expressive tools, but I would say this is those, a lot of people have probably done that, but super, super powerful. And smell way up there with them too. I have a real interest in um, in really opening up our sense of the more than human world and the way it's interpenetrated with the human world. And so there are two practices that that I've either done or have heard led by a friend which really touched me. Um, the first was finding out where the city's water supply came from and charting a, like really mindful walking practice from somewhere in the city 
out to that dam, out to that water source and really in, invoking that connection. And the other uh, that I just learnt really recently was um, bird watching in the city but not knowing the birds and coming up with names for the birds yourself. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think there is, is tremendous value in going out into the deep wilderness and learning truly, you know, the, the names of animals and, and how they interact in these complex ecosystems. But I also think there's a really important part about accessibility and that for some people, well, I would hope an environmental chaplain would be working maybe with children or adults who, who have never done anything like that and starting just in their back garden. Um, one thing that comes up for me in this is just the importance of storytelling and play um, and bringing kind of a joy and a discovery into this. One of my most... Um, happy recent memories is leading um, the team at my workplace and we work for um, an education nonprofit, so nothing to do with the environment but um, leading 20 people through um, basically an exercise where I gave them information, I split them into groups and I don't know if anyone's familiar with um, emergent strategy, um, Adrian Marie Brown's work and we split into groups of ants, oak trees, geese, and mycelium. And they read quotes and learned and did research. And um, basically the challenge was to find a way to connect whatever being they were assigned to with our core values as an organization, which are really rooted in compassion and generosity um, and community. And they created the most phenomenal, you know, performances and presentations. And it was just above and beyond um, when people are given that opportunity to connect to something that they knew nothing about um, in nature and, like, revel in it. It was really sweet. I want to give Diana a chance to finish writing. <laughs> okay. I'm interested in um, connecting a social justice awareness with nature. Um, when I'm in nature, I'm so keenly aware that it's not racialized and it's not gendered. And I think of all the oppressive social constructs that, that create so much suffering. Um, so I think connecting to nature in that way, connecting to the absence of those oppressive constructs would be very healing. Um, I'm Bronte. Um, I am interested in how we can um, learn resilience practices from the earth um, and how ancestors have um, 
been working with the earth as an accomplice in their liberation um, and thinking about um, Harriet Tubman as a navigator and an herbalist and listening to witnessing the stars uh, to seek freedom or practicing um, invisibility through learning how to be less traceable. Um, so there are a lot of ways I think we can understand how people have been with the earth as an accomplice in their um, liberation. And I'm thinking about practices in the city. Like Beth mentioned, there's people like Movement Generation and Ancestral Apothecary who are um, teaching people how to be street medics and learning what medicine lives in our cities that is growing all of, around us that can respond in inevitable social emergencies um, and that we're building that training even in the city to know that the earth is is with us and supporting us. Um, and I just learned about tracking as a method of resistance to just witness how um, the ways um, animals are moving against the grid in ways we can bear witness to how they are practicing decolonizing um, because they move in ways that are quieter and off how we imagine. I'm saying a lot. <laughs> um, how we, yeah, how we can learn from how they're moving. It's really deep. So, okay. Yeah. So long before I was Buddhist, I was a gardener and found a lot of solace and connection and meaning by just having my hands in earth. And um, I had an experience probably about 10 years ago at a Buddhist monastery of the work meditation for me and all of the nuns was to be up in the garden um, helping to cultivate and harvest the food for the monastery. And it was beautiful practice, and it really set things up for a lot of depth in the meditation to be... Um, in the rhythms of the natural cycle of um, planting, harvesting, tending. So it might be something to bring to people who don't have access to the wilds. Uh, mine, mine's short, so... <laughs> But I'm, I'm, uh, I guess I'm kind of struck by the uh, indifference that I see <clears throat> um, among us about the planet, and you know, the, this. Not, it's not even. It's, um, it's kind of an unconsciousness. So uh, my thought about that is to ask people what they love about the planet. Like just, um, you know, I even people close to me that. Don't care. So I would just, anyway, what do you love about the planet? That's my advice. Um, not even in a group way, but I've always loved with grandchildren taking them to nature and having different experiences. And um, 
so my son lives in Phoenix and they have a swimming pool because they live in Phoenix. And when my granddaughter was maybe about five or six, the first thing we'd always do in the morning was rescue the bees from the swimming pool. And um, it was really sweet because she developed a real interest in bees and then got involved um, in supporting a program at UC Davis that is trying to save the bees. And she um, was collecting money to contribute and following the story of the bees. So, um, you know, it was really sweet. So for me, it's like take the opportunity when it's there, whether it's a kid with a tree or whatever, um, because they kids spend so much time doing other things. Hi, I'm Lauren, and uh, the work I do has been um, with people who are transitioning out of their bodies. And um, I've noticed that, um, so I'm a, oh, sure, I'm a hospice chaplain. And um, I noticed that many times family members um, also become very insulated and their energy becomes very shrunk to the room where their loved one is dying and to just bring them outside even if it's just for a moment without saying anything that as a reminder there's more there's more as a way of allowing people in some way to then allow their loved one to leave. So, uh, yeah. And I remember, <laughs> I remember 40 years ago, and I was a hospice nurse, um, my husband, when his mother died, um, who was a patient of mine, she, as soon as she died, he says, I have to go out and work in the earth. I have to go dig. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in um, figuring out a way to... Um, <clears throat> create more uh, awareness and mindfulness in just everybody's surroundings. And so that would mean for me just in our own urban area, um, and as I said before, because I'm so concerned about the water, um, everything that's on the in the gutter, everything that's on the sidewalks, everything that everyone throws away, it's all going in the bay. So just kind of figuring out how to create more awareness to just, you know, not not litter and to pick up what you see. Um, I'm sort of thinking about two things right now. One is probably my main environmental practice other than picking up trash sort of along the lines you're saying um, is... Um, uh, I've been working a little bit as a volunteer with Canopy, which does tree pruning and planting and maintenance. And one of the things I've sort of realized is if you're doing, 
you know, you're checking out other people's trees in some other neighborhood or whatever. How do you figure out what it needs? And I'm realizing there's kind of a piece of allowing myself or encouraging myself and other people to look at what's out there and figure out what it needs. Just as a doctor looks at a person and or or a healthcare person looks and sees, you know, is it healthy? Does it need water, etc.? Um, what are the signs of health in a tree um, or disease? The other thing I've sort of been aware of is when I walk or, or bike to work or part of the way to work, I really connect with the smell and how does the air feel. And I feel like I don't need to look at the weather report. You know, I can feel it. And I can tell whether a food is still okay to eat by smelling it, right? And obviously that's what people had to do for the longest time. But now people think they have to look at a date on a package or they have to turn on the TV or the radio to figure out whether it's going to rain. And so it seems to me that I would like to encourage other people to realize that they have the ability to observe, that they don't have to rely on someone else to tell them whether something is healthy, whether it's going to rain. I mean, obviously there are exceptions, but that we have a lot of ability there that's, that's accessible. I was um, ins- very inspired to read um, Thich Nhat Hanh before, when I was not befriending walking meditation with the great ease that I had for sitting. And as I read the words, let your footsteps, let each footstep kiss the earth, um, brought great meaning forever after to my walking meditation which I then allowed um, to accompany me on walks in nature. And since then, I accompany myself on walks in nature, which I often do alone. Um, listening for my own footsteps has become um, a way to be more intimate with where I am and with whom I am. I think um, a window, uh, like a glass window, can be a friend to connecting people to nature. Uh, from my experience in hospice, I, I just was, did some volunteer hospice work, uh, and I took care of my mother. And uh, at a certain point, when I just lived with her while she was going, and she couldn't get out of bed anymore, but I could still get her into a wheelchair. And she knew it was spring, and the ro- her bedroom didn't have a very big window, but the living room, which was right next door, had one. So she said, let's, let's go out in the living room. The trees are beginning to leaf out. I want to see them. So we went in, and there's a bigger window. And then we could see four w- trees in a row. And the first three were kind of 
you know, like something from a kid's book than, I mean, regular-looking trees. The last one was kind of more like this, you know. And she said, oh, I like that one. That one's special, you know. So she was expressing something, you know, even though, you know, uh, speech was very limited and moving was very limited, she was able to look through a window and see something. Also, when I did hospice work at Zen Center, um, thank goodness there was a nurse, a very experienced nurse with me, and when the person passed on, and uh, she went, also there wasn't very much to see out the window, and, and the bed was a little far away. This person also was not able, to, the person who passed on was not able to walk around. She was moved into a bed. But this person went, she opened up the window, and she said, oh yeah, at work, when I'm a nurse, I always do this, and people tease me, but you know, I just do this. After someone dies, I open the window, so you know, they can go out, you know. <laughs> like, so I think, uh, I think it's great that people hike and do things, but even in a very restricted situation, maybe a window could help you. So I teach um, mindfulness-based nature practices over the summer. I've been doing that. And um, I teach it to people who have really severe chronic pain. So there's a lot of suffering going on, um, a lot of suffering from loss of just not only their body but other parts of their life. And I'm really interested in how nature just kind of naturally allows people to be held and to be healed. Um, One of my favorite practices um, is actually inviting people to look at the interconnection of nature as the way that nature um, offers love to the environment. So the sun as um, shining down on trees, as you know, the way that the sun loves trees the trees offering shelter to birds as a way that the trees show love to birds, and then pointing out that our connection to nature is the same way. We also get our food, our shelter, all from nature, and to really allow people to tap into that feeling and then extend that to a body scan or some other way so they can really soak in that love is just, in my experience, has been really transformational to the people that I share that with. Um through uh, working with people inside prison and jail as well as working with people in a national park. Um, I've really gotten to witness, and then I also actually did my graduate research on this as well, sort of this sense of literally expanding one's sense of citizenship and expanding one's sense of of body, of like um, with just kind of education as well as just like poetry and things like that. Like the environment around us, we, we don't stop here and it starts there. There's, there's, this, there's this fabulous blur. And um, I think particularly if you're incarcerated, that's deeply meaningful, right? You're not, you're not this little tiny punished person. You're all this too. So. Um, one of the things that I've really appreciated is that human beings have had quite a connection with animals for a long time, you know, sort of seeing cycles of life and death and cycles of behavior in the animal world. And so I take walks in the Baylands during my breaks at work, and I've been watching geese. And I've noticed that as you pass a group of geese, there are geese who are completely peaceful, there are geese who are aversive. There are geese that are curious. I mean, they they each have their individual response to someone walking by, and I understand that there's a 
there's a hierarchy or an order there, but there's also just individual creatures' behaviors. And so I, I think kids are automatically attuned to that. I noticed in the kids' groups, they will talk about pets be, and, and animals before they talk about the people in their lives. So it's a source of connection for us. Um, I'm thinking of my friend uh, Desi, who is of Wapo and Dene ancestry, who shared that the land misses the indigenous names um, of these places, the plants, the animals, um, miss their indigenous names. So I think it's really important when we're talking about um, land to learn um, what these places have been called and what these names have been so that we might remember that um, that sound in the ecology. Uh, one thing that comes to mind, there's a couple of, of practices I use somewhat regularly, and one of them is, is um, just simply stargazing and just trying to find a dark sky somewhere, which admittedly in, in an urban setting is, is quite difficult. In a national park, it's, it's a little easier. Um, but just looking up at the sky and meditating on, you know, what place do I have in it, and um, how big is it, and what does that all mean? Um, the other practice that I, I tend to give clients is um, just stepping out somewhere in nature. It doesn't have to be someplace dramatic. It could be just walking out to a park or the backyard and, and finding um, something, a, a tree or a stream or creek, and just being with it and, and asking this other um, member of our world, you know, what can you teach me? What is it that you have to teach me? You'll be the last. The last one. <clears throat> so uh, this was beautiful. Thank you all. Uh, so we partly, I think we partly experienced that which we, desire to manifest in the world, which was this chance to hear from so many different perspectives, um, these beautiful connections to nature. The, the point, Chris, Kirsten, that I was sort of longing to make, we're, in, we're talking about belonging and, and the, longing, the longing for something and the longing for connection, which is clearly an important part of this. Um, the chaplaincy that I've had the closest experience with is in a university college campus. And one of the things that, that, that happened was um, as the dean of religious and spiritual life worked with chaplains and, um, to bring students together to, to come into connection with their own spiritual uh, formation and, and what they knew and to, and to bring that out, the bringing it out was very important. So, so, so it, as, a, as a chaplain is working with these issues, um, giving people an, an opportunity, all these different beautiful opportunities you've offered to come into awareness of their own deep connections to nature and their own longings and, and, and severance from that connection. But then also giving them a chance, having done that, to reach out to others, to connect with others. So being the learner and the teacher, that, that sort of interaction is so powerful, I think. And, and, and it's part of the community building that I think could make this really an exciting opportunity.
Thank you. That was the, that was a beautiful harvest. So um, just stage stage one of our time together, and um, really a, a yeah inspiring uh, kind of list of amazing practices that we can reflect on. Uh, so we're going to transition into a bit of a break. We have. Um, 20 minutes scheduled for walking bathroom. The bathrooms are over there. Is this on? Yeah. Um, you know, getting any needs met. And then we'll reconvene. Um, one of us will ring a bell a few minutes before. And then we'll come back here. And then um, we'll start off our next session. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.